Welcome to Photo Geek Weekly, episode number 84, recorded on October 22nd, 2019. This is uh, my favorite hour, hour and a bit of the week, uh, where I get to sit down with another guest host and uh, and discuss the photo geekery stuff that's been in the news. Uh, every news cycle will have enough stories for us to gab on uh, and really kind of get it's cliche to say under the hood of a particular topic, but we like to to go and, and tinker with things that other podcasts or news stories might be just kind of making a, a hidden story, something that doesn't really get as much attention or take a different approach to it. And so this episode, uh, I'm thrilled to have probably my favorite guest host. That's a, it's a bold statement to say, at least he's the most recurring guest host. Uh, and not the best. <laughs> just the favorite. Well, maybe yeah. I... Yeah, you might be. You might be, but no, let's just no, leave no, that no, one no. open. Uh, so Steve Brazel is here. Steve, how are you doing, sir? I'm very good, thank you. It is wonderful to see you again. You look amazing. Oh, thank you. Uh, it's, we're in the process of finishing uh, renos of our sunroom. And uh, I mean, I'm, I'm not doing much of the heavy lifting, but I, I was given the uh, the command of make sure that there's nothing inside of it. And so uh, I have just been lifting tables and moving all sorts of stuff around right before we record. So I'm glad I still look presentable. You look presentable and uh, your lighting is nice and soft and fashionable. Why, thank you. Uh, of course, we, nobody gets to see the lighting. I know, that's why I say you. It. <laughs> <laughs> it's theater of the mind, man. I'm painting a picture. Perfect. Uh, what, what's new and what's happening with you, Steve? Uh, all the normal stuff is happening with me. Shooting concerts and this past weekend was... Uh, two of them, I had an all-day festival for self-help, fe- self-help fest on Saturday, and then Godsmack and Hailstorm on Sunday, and had just tons of photos to go through, and the normal Lightroom nightmares. Yep. Well, uh, nightmares? What do you mean? Oh, my Lightroom is, it's the only thing on the machine that constantly hangs and freezes. Well, uh, I... <sighs> I mean, I've had my issues with Lightroom as well. I mean, I'm not going to state that it is, uh, it, it's perfect for everybody. My, my issues uh, stem mostly from the graphics uh, integration. Yeah, uh, and that's where, really what's doing it, which is why I do most of my culling in photo mechanic. And, and you know, again, not to go down a rabbit hole, but uh, I'm always looking at other things. I just don't have time to test them properly. Like I really want to get into Capture One. It's just a time issue with, you know, my podcast and and all the other stuff that I do. Well, and it's weird though, because Adobe hits it out of the park with uh, graphics card integration with um, Adobe Premiere, right? And yes, Photoshop exactly. I've had no issues with. So, and I know that uh, at least uh, there's some overlap between the team that does Lightroom and the team that does Photoshop uh, in some places. So why the mismatch in sort of quality assurance and testing on the Lightroom side of things? It just doesn't and, make any and sense. And that's a good question. And one of, the, one of the interesting things to me is you know that it's a problem at the core of, of Adobe software. When the number one troubleshooting thing that you do in Lightroom is turn off graphic card ex- acceleration. Yeah. Yeah. That's, and that will uh, 90% that not of the time fix point. your issue. Right. Yeah. Right. Well, hey, I mean, what, 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 what can we do to, uh, to resolve this? I mean, we can try to put pressure on Adobe. <laughs> like that's going to work. Yeah, like they're going to listen to us. 
we could try to just, you know, uh, vote with our wallet and use other software. Uh, and I, I actually want to get further away from the Adobe Creative Cloud because I don't like putting all of my eggs in one basket. I would right. like to have diversity in my software vendors. Uh, and that also, you know, puts in competition. Uh, and we need more of that in every space across the photographic industry. So yeah. uh, we need to mention, by the way, the thing that we're doing together. Oh, yes. Let's do that right off the top. Uh, so Steve and I have been talking for quite some time, actually, um, about the possibility of doing a critique show where we hit back and forth some key points on images um, that are submitted by uh, by viewers, by listeners, and, uh, and we'll give our honest opinions, uh, the good, the bad, the ugly, but it's constructive. It's designed right. to be uh, a show that helps people learn uh, and is pretty well straight to the point uh, based on uh, our, our ideas. We haven't recorded any yet. We are in the process uh, of enlisting support of the audience. So Steve, how are we doing that? So there is a Flickr group, and let me add to what you said, actually, and that is we're not going to do what you see on some critique shows where we spend a long time on one image and dissect it and talk about and, and pull it up in Lightroom and show you how we would crop it. It's going to be very quick you know, quick shooting on each image. The old saying is that you only remember 10% of what you hear. We're going to try and only give you the 10%. Try and only give you those things that will help you accelerate and get your your art to another level. And so we've got a Flickr group. If you go to Flickr and you join Flickr, you can join on a free plan. And you find the group called Behind the Shot, which is the name of my podcast. And all you have to do is submit an image to the Behind the Shot Flickr group and make sure that you tag it, all one word, there's no spaces and tags, BTS Critique for Behind the Shot. So BTS Critique. Also on Flickr, you technically don't need the hashtag symbol, just BTS Critique and you'll be good to go. That way we can search the images, find them, and grab 20 or whatever random ones and we're going we're gonna to do some, some critiquing. Yeah, and again, we're going to be kind of free-flowing in terms of um, how the show is formatted, because we don't really know exactly how, how to, we've never done it's this It's a work before. in progress. Uh, it's a work in progress. Yeah. Uh, so, And we'll have the link to the Flickr group in the show notes uh, uh, of this show on photogeekweekly.com as well, if you want to find a quick reference to that. Of course, if you go to um, uh, Steve's uh, uh, main podcast, BehindTheShot.tv, uh, I'm certain that you'll have links to I it have there. A, I have a link to the Flickr group there. Uh, at the top with all my social media links. And I actually have not announced this on my show yet, but I have a show coming out. We're recording this on the 22nd of October. I have a show coming out Thursday, the 24th with uh, an amazing, arguably, and called by a couple of magazines, the best wedding photographer on the planet, Dennis Reggie. Uh, and that'll be the first time that I mention it on my show. All right. So, uh, that, that, there you have it. There's going to be a critique show with uh, my voice and Steve's voice uh, at the helm, uh, alternating. And, and there will be an video. Image. So this is going to be yeah. recorded as video and it will be put. This is not going to be in my podcast video feed because about 50 percent of my listeners are audio only and about 50 percent are viewing my my video podcast feed. And that's great. But this show, because of its nature, is going to kind of require a visual. So this is going to only go on the YouTube channel. Right. And and it'll be a great place for us to receive comments. And uh, and and potentially, this is just kind of uh, uh, dreaming at the moment, but it would be great to do something like this live. Um, 
And uh, so we'll we'll see where the idea evolves, and uh, your participation would be greatly appreciated if you want us to talk about your work. So, uh, Steve, thanks for uh, you know putting that together. I mean, we're both doing legwork for it, and I'm happy that you're able to to host it and put it under your brand. But uh, I mean, I'm more than willing to to lend my voice to it forever. Yeah, and it's been something you and I when we talked about it. It's been something I've wanted to do for about three years, and I mentioned it to to Don in passing one day, and his eyes lit up, and he goes. I'll help. <laughs> and yeah. since then, this is just good. It's going to be a great team. Even down the road, there is the possibility that we'll bring in a third participant, just a random other known photographer to come in and comment on things. So long, long as we can of, keep things succinct, right? That's the yeah. key, right? Well, and, and I do this with image competitions a lot where we have three judges. So there's a lot of room for this thing to maneuver and grow. And I just think it's going to be fun for everybody to grow in their art. All right. Well, uh, enough said about that upcoming show. Uh, people are listening to this one for the meat of this episode. Um, and so to start things off, I, I think I'd start with a magic number, Steve, the magic number of 0.95. I mean, why that was decided on to be um, the number of luxury in lenses. Uh, there's probably a reason for it. But these are some of the fastest uh, commercially available lenses. And Nikon has introduced its 58 millimeter f 0.95 manual focus lens uh, for the uh, the new Z mount or Z mount for you Americans, um, and uh, the crowds are not happy. Of course, you're, you're reading comments on the internet, so you're going to get all sorts of riffraff that don't really have any bearing on uh, on the actual product. So if we get into the, the heart of what Nikon is trying to do here and what other companies are doing in that space, because they're not the only one. Uh, Leica is famous for their Noctilux 50mm f0.95, which is something of a lens to put on a pedestal and worship for people that are um, enamored with the Leica brand. Right. Uh, uh, Nikon's trying to do the same thing and there's getting pushback here. Uh, what, what are your initial thoughts based on how they designed it, how much it costs and who it's for? It's, it's interesting to me that like you say, that, that F.095 has become the luxury brand, but it's obviously difficult to do. They're very expensive lenses. They are quite often manual lenses uh, fully manual lenses. So there is no autofocus on these lenses. <clears throat> yeah, Canon had an F, uh, F1.0 EF lens when they were really trying to champion um, their EOS system uh, as an evolution from the FD mount. And that's the only F1.0 autofocus lens that I know of. Yeah. Um, but what Canon had done with that lens design uh, is they made it focus by wire. And to do that, uh, I mean, w when you're moving the focus on the lens, you're not actually mechanically moving the lens. It's uh, controlled by the autofocus system that then just engages to exactly what degree you've adjusted it. For. Well, answer this for me, because, uh, you know, now that I think about it, somebody's going to ask us on social media and you're the guy that would know the answer to this. Why is 0.095 apparently, I would guess, difficult to do as autofocus? Because nobody does. Right. Well, and, and I was trying to get to the point where Canon did F1.0 um, and they did a focus by wire system. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm going to get around to that question, Steve, uh, or to the answer. But the um, the idea with that was, uh, OK, well, I mean, that's convenient because the glass was pretty heavy uh, on a lens of that size and design. But the issue is what happens when it breaks? 
especially now when there's no serviceable parts for it. If that autofocus system and motor breaks, you don't get a manual focus lens. You have a no focus lens. It's just stuck. Um, and so uh, the issue is especially what well, Leica's always been a brand of of manual lenses for the uh, the uh, M series rangefinder. They're all manual. Uh, so there's no surprise there. For Nikon to go manual focus on this one, I think it might have to do with two things. Number one, the complexity of adding autofocus to the design would have upped the cost. But number two, you'd be moving very heavy glass. And so the motors required to do that uh, would require more power. And uh, that might drain the battery even faster. I know on some of the pro-level cameras, uh, I believe this was Nikon, if, if I'm not mistaken, uh, when you would get like a, a D2345 uh, series camera body versus something smaller, uh, the autofocus uh, motor could sometimes be in the camera body itself rather than in the lens. And there right. are certain lenses that would have been um, uh, autofocus if you had a compatible body, manual focus otherwise. And so the power of that motor in the camera body would determine the uh, performance therein of the lens's autofocus system. There, there was a lot of moving parts in that. And I think they've largely gone away from that. But my takeaway would be that the amount of power draw required it to autofocus this lens would drain the camera's battery unless you were using something with a beefy gripped battery with this lens so fast that it would be just another point on the cons list for it say like what well what why would you design this to drain your battery twice as fast as any other lens well and you you brought up the the uh the noctilux m from leica that is also a 0.095 lens but it's 50 millimeters <clears throat> this one is 58 millimeters, mm -hmm. but that Leica is way smaller and way lighter. So weight wise, the why? Leica is 700 grams. This right. is 2000 grams. Yeah. It's more than twice the size, almost three times. Yeah. Um, but, and yet it's cheaper, which is interesting. I mean, it's not interesting. A Leica is going to be expensive. A Leica is uh, 12,000 bucks or 11,200 something bucks. This is an $8,000 lens. And, one of the, one of the things when I'm looking at this and I'm thinking of you sent me a link to a, a Rumiere is that how you pronounce it Rumiere uh, Rumiere maybe. I don't know uh <laughs> that is a 75 millimeter .095 lens and that one's only 4000 so you could make the argument 4, that Nikon has 4, put a lens grams, right say again $4000 not $4000 not grams correct you could make the argument that that Nikon has created a lens in the middle of the market which is not a bad thing. I don't personally understand the huge amount of backlash. People who are going to spend $4,000 or in the case of the Nikon, $8,000 on a prime lens. Or in the case of, the, of the, the, the Leica Noctilux, <laughs> $11,295 yeah, US. On a prime lens that's 58 millimeters, just because it's 0.095 at the f-stop, they don't care about the price and they surely don't care about manual. They're getting it because this is the tool that they want. And my thing is every camera company seems to get these complaints. Canon, when they came out with the RF, like if you read this article, they talk about the order that people are releasing lenses. And one of the complaints of the author of this article, who, by the way, he did write a good article and I, we, we should mention him and I'm looking for his name here right now uh, uh on the, the petapixel article oh jason Jaren schneider yeah. uh or Jaren schneider yeah 
Um, Jaron wrote a good article. I mean, it's a little weird that he started with seven tons of poop per day in the Burj Khalifa. That was an odd twist, but still, okay. <laughs> uh, but one of the complaints that he has in here, which is valid, and it's happened for Canon with the RF, it's happened for Sony, and that is that they're releasing lenses in the wrong order. So if if Nikon is going to release a mount for the Z-series lens, this probably wasn't the lens that they should have released. Well, they needed a uh, a champion, right? They needed a lens that is like a, a, a killer app um, that not everybody can afford. But if it's there in the lineup, it's some level of aspiration. But to should that. you get that? I, but no, I don't think you it should get have been the this definitive lens. pro lens. I, I think that uh, Nikon has been stuck for a long time because on their F mount, as soon as they added the autofocus and electronic controls of the lenses, um, their maximum aperture went down to F 1.4. That was as wide as they could go. Yeah. Where and Canon so- has F 1.2s. Well, and they, you know, they even pushed the limits and sacrificed image quality to get F1.0 back in the early days because they knew Nikon couldn't touch them. Nikon couldn't get anywhere near that. And so Nikon coming to the table at uh, F0.95 is kind of a shot across Canon's bow to say, hey, look what we can do. Look what our system is capable of, you know, uh, what do you have to, to, to hit us back with? And I, I don't think that's necessarily the right approach. I mean, it's a it's an ancient rivalry, sure, um, but it's one. It's funny because uh, I want to go back to that uh, the Leica Noctilux and the size and the weight thing that we were talking about earlier because there was another point of reference within that. Um, if you actually look at the MTF charts between the Nikon Noct and the Leica Noctilux, um, the Nikon is much much better. It vastly outperforms the night uh, oh, yeah. the, the, the Leica lens and yeah i mean sure Leica the design is a little bit more ancient and um uh, and there's design fundamentals specifically because Leica had to make their lens small cuz remember the Noctilux is a rangefinder lens if they made it as big as Nikon's lens, you couldn't see through the rangefinder. It had to have a specific barrel size any bigger than that, and it just wouldn't work. Uh, I remember Leica was toying around with uh, some uh, teleconverters uh, for some of their lenses on the M series. I don't know if they ever went into final production on them because on some of the lenses, adding the teleconverter would obscure the rangefinder itself. And so you need to have that viewer to make it classically compatible with all of the Leica M series cameras. That's why they designed it the way that they did in terms of size. If they did not have that constraint, I'm pretty sure Leica would have favored quality uh, over this niche of functionality. Well, and, and, and looking no longer- looking at those charts, while we can extrapolate the quality, the truth is it could do worse on those charts, but when you shoot it, it has a better image quality. I mean, we really, unless you shoot these things side by side, we really don't know. It's a good point because especially when the goal for a lot of these images is to have out of focus backgrounds, you know, you're not going to have an image sharp corner to corner if you're shooting wide open in any lens of right. this caliber. So an MTF chart is more of a, a baseline for a technical reference. So I'd love to have them both. But the technical reference, let's just be clear, does not necessarily directly relate to image quality. Well, that's but, why I love my, my Trio Plan 100 lens. It's an ancient triplet design, which 
those first triplets came about in 1916, I believe, uh, a long time ago. And optically, it's flawed. And that's why I like it. It's it's MTF chart. I wouldn't even want to look at that thing. I would cry. But I go. still enjoy like uh, using the lens. Right. I mean, tools are judged by by very many variables, right? There's a lot of reasons you do or don't want a lens. As an example, he alludes in here that Nikon's big problem with the Z series was they that they released, for example, a 24 to 70 F4. And that that immediately says they made a mistake because pros want a 2.8. Well, that's assuming pros are pros. Pros are not pros. Each pro is not equal to any other pro. I know pros that A, don't care about buying the the native glass. They've got a 2.8 24 to 70. They're perfectly happy using an adapter. Or I know pros that will tell you because they're shooting landscape in, in daylight that they're completely happy buying a 70 to 200 F4 without IS instead of a 2.8 with IS. So the idea that all pros need a 2.8 lens is flawed from the beginning. Right. right. Well, especially from a weight concern, I know people that would prefer the F4. You know, it's just it's more convenient and mobile. Um, I think that the the F2.8 lens should come with uh, whatever. I'm assuming Nikon is going to do something better than the Z7. So let's call it a Z9. Um, and there's rumors abound about that, too, which we, you know, it's not on our rundown today. But um, if you were to release a pro level F2.8 lens alongside that body, that would make more sense to me. Um, so then to have, then to have these, uh, like this, I'll call it a flagship lens, this, uh, 58 millimeter F 0.95, uh, out of the blue without a proper infrastructure around it. Um, which is where the article was originally referencing the poop, uh, in the Burj Khalifa, but uh, it was actually, I I will say as much as I made a joke about that, I will say I, that was an interesting factoid. To hear, uh, it's worth reading the article just to understand that part of it. It was just an odd way to start an article. But I do agree that this could be <clears throat> planting a sign in the sand, right? Of, look, we we can do for this mount and have done, a, 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 you know, key product here with this lens. Right. right? But... I'll say the same thing I said when the when the, the Canon R series came out. I do believe it's a mistake. I do believe that there are lenses, not necessarily going 2.8, but I do believe that there are lenses that people today want for the Z series that aren't available in native glass that I think should have come out first. Yeah, yeah, but... Um, we are not the marketing people at Nikon. Uh, so maybe they had this design, uh, because they were working on it even well before the whole system was finalized. Um, because they had just, their engineers had been salivating over a faster lens and dreaming of the one day when it could happen. Um, and just as a pet project had been working on this behind the scenes. And when it came time to actually create it, they were further ahead in that design. Uh, you can't get inside their head entirely, but Hey, no, but that's actually, that's actually not a bad point, Don. It's entirely possible this has been on the drawing board for years or a decade. And like you said, they simply couldn't with the switch of mount, they couldn't get that far open. 
Yeah. But they've wanted to for a long time. And when they came out with the Z series, it's like, remember that lens we worked on 10 years ago? We could do it now. Exactly. And and with uh, modern optics, uh, you know, coatings and, uh, and, and glass construction uh, materials, all that. But stuff, the engineering so. may have already been done. Well, in terms of an optical formula, maybe, uh, yeah. and, and maybe they even dreamt up an op- an optical formula that on paper could work, but couldn't be manufactured because the technology hasn't existed yet. Right. And you see a lot of companies that publish, um, uh, or not publish, but they, they file patents uh, for optical formulas because you can't, um, I mean, you can patent a very specific optical formula and then nobody else can use that same one. Uh, I didn't do the research on this, but I would be very curious to know when the optical formula for this 58 millimeter knocked was filed. Uh, I'd be curious to know what timelines we would have been. Cause that at would, that. if you think about it, that would explain the, the relatively compared to the Z mount, right. To the, to the Z series mount system that would explain the relatively quick turnaround of a lens like this. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I, I am glad we have it. Uh, no question. And, and I would like to see similar lenses from Canon, from Sony. And we talked about the Air lens, which is another manufacturer. Uh, they're making a 75 millimeter F0.95, which is just crazy. Um, that will be available uh, in, in a number of mounts, but including the Leica L mount. So uh, that means Panasonic, Sigma, and Leica would have access to a um, an F0.95 lens as well. It's not just Nikon. And it's only $4,000. And it's only $4,000, right? Well, it's half the price. I mean, it's still a ridiculous amount of money to to spend on a lens but it's it's half the more ridiculous amount that nikon is uh is purporting now i don't have an mtf chart for it uh, and that's not to judge a lens by its charts um but it is good to see that other manufacturers are making what looks to be a decent lens uh to fit this uh this particular niche now f0.95 is honestly not all that useful um, and if your autofocus isn't spot on, maybe that's another reason why autofocus doesn't usually accompany these lenses, because if you focus just a hair off yeah. uh, of somebody's eyes, uh, then their eyes are out of focus. The tolerance isn't the, the, the autofocus tolerance isn't tight enough. Right. But I've seen some really nice images done with some of these incredibly fast lenses where you're doing like a full body portrait. And the background just becomes so much more out of focus than you would expect. But the subject is further away from the camera. And the further away your subject is, the greater your depth of field is going to be. And so in that scenario, when you're not doing a standard headshot, but a full body uh, or even an environmental portrait, uh, to have that focus point further away, you have the advantage of also being able to blur the background. So there is a use for these lenses. There, well, there and, is and let's remember, an for it. lenses like this that are, you know, 0.095, even a 2.8 lens, a lot of times it's not because you want to shoot it wide open, which is arguably the worst performance of a lens. Yeah, you do take it it's down a stop It's because you want to stop it down a stop or so. So if you really want to shoot at 1.8, rather than buying a 1.8 lens, you buy a 0.095 lens, shoot it at 1.8 or 2.0, and you get closer to a sweet spot on that lens without yeah. having to be I, I would open. argue that you'd even find a sweet spot at f1.2 uh it, it would solidify the lens that much uh that that much more agree so, yeah uh lot, lots to consider there i'd love to get my hands on one i mean i'm not a nikon shooter but even just to handle it and shoot some test images with one of those lenses would be a lot of fun or you heck, should even reach take, out to, to nikon and ask them 
Yeah, well, I, but also, uh, I, I'm going to see if I can get one of these uh, Ruminaires, uh, uh, R- R- because I can put that on on my uh, my Lumix bodies, and that might be uh, a better way for me to experience the nine uh, the zero point nine five universe. But heck, wouldn't it be cool to like put a speed booster on that and throw this thing on a micro four thirds body uh, and just recondense all? You could shoot in the dark. Uh, I mean, like bats flying by without putting a flash on kind of uh, illumination. So uh, we'll see. It'll, it'll be fun to see how this all shakes out. And I'm curious now, Nikon has put this on the table. Canon has to come out with a trophy lens too. And I don't know how close they are. And I don't really want to say that they have to. Do they but- though? Really? I mean, and, and actually I think I've been saying 0.095 and it's 0.95. But but really, is this a world that Canon really has to compete on or else? Not really. No, but they, they have to put out a trophy lens. It doesn't have to be this fast. Uh, but they have to put out that lens that everybody idolizes that they might not be able to afford, um, like the... 1200 millimeter EF lens, uh, right. which yeah, they, they sold what 30 or 40 of them in the entire run of, of that lens, but just something to get people talking about what the possibilities at the extremes are, even if that's not something that you're going to buy. No, I could see that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, all right, let's, uh, go on to the next story here, uh, which this is this something is that fun. I've been, it's something that I've been talking about for a long time. And I think the initial research, I couldn't find the article off the top of my head, but I remember it being from MIT. Um, the idea that a pixel uh, would have near infinite dynamic range by having it, uh, when it reaches its full capacity, like uh, when enough photons hit the, uh, uh, the, the photosite to fill the electrons all the way up to the top, um, that it drains that back down to zero and uh, integrates a counter that clicks up by one. And so it understands that as a value and then adds to it. And so uh, this uh, has uh, possibly been in prototypes before, but now we're seeing some even further design from this. So uh, to read from the Petapixel article, German researchers have created a new high dynamic range CMOS image sensor that features a new pixel design that could pretty much do away with blown out highlights using a technique much the same as I have described. Um, so Steve, initial thoughts and then practicality. Okay. Oh, I'm excited about this story. So basically what you're talking about is an HDR sensor, right? It is effectively with certain pixels that are capturing the highlight range going to effectively, let's, 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 for sake of conversation, describe a pixel as an entire sensor, right? That pixel, that sensor of a pixel is going to take effectively more than one shot. It's going to take a shot. And then as though it were an array, it's going to increase the number to understand positioning in in the stacking and let it capture more data. Increase it again, let it capture more data. Highlights are the hardest things that you can recover in a picture. So when you're shooting, you'll hear the the phrase exposed to the right. What that basically means is watch the right side, don't clip the right side. If you clip the blacks, you can usually get, if you're shooting raw, you can usually recover those shadows. You bring noise with it, but they are there. Yeah. If you clip highlights, the data is gone. There is no data to recover there. So the ability to, to me, this is transformative in photography. If this works at the pixel level, 
It's multi-exposure effectively. And that could change photography. What was fascinating to me about this was this was not intended to be and is not at this point intended to be for still photography. The researcher has said, (laughs) say again, I said, what is it intended for? The researcher has said that the current focus for this is video for industrial applications. Yep. But basically, it could also be used for still images. Well, and you you look at the uh, in industrial scientific sort of research platform where um, it's not feasible to take multiple images of the exact same scene and uh, you know combine that together to increase the dynamic range, which we right. have been doing for many years uh, photographically with stills. So there are certain scenarios where that's not an option. Uh, and some people might be able to or might be willing to pay a considerable amount of money. Could you imagine um, the ability like right now uh, when we want to shoot uh, I- images of like far off uh, planets? Well, if they're orbiting a star, we can't see it. We actually have to block out the star. Uh, you know, sometimes like could, you could imagine like holding up a little circle over that star in order to block it out so that you could see the stuff around it. Um, that technical limit- limitation might be gone in this right. case because you would be able to have that uh, dramatically uh, increased dynamic range. Um, so there's a lot of, of uses for this. Um, however... It's going to be, at least from the beginning, impossible for us to have in our cameras, partly due to the way that cameras read out information, because um, most sensors will read out row by row. Right. So you have uh, one uh, one row of pixels horizontally, usually across the entire sensor are read at the same time in order to implement a technology like this. Every single pixel has to have its own uh, analog to digital converter. Uh, right. Or- it would effectively have to do in-camera HDR on a per pixel level. On a per pixel level, but assemble on- that. But that could be done. I mean, it could be done. And 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 again, going back to what you said about the planet, that was actually a really interesting analogy. If it's circling a star, that's that's actually fascinating. But. To me, the reason video is is so key here, because if we're doing a still photo of a non-moving subject, we can place a camera on a tripod. Yeah, we can take multiple shots. But anytime there's a moving subject, doing that kind of HDR type use becomes more difficult. But if it can be done at the sensor level, yeah, that's uh, where but, it helps with video. But we need to keep in mind how complex a chip would get when you try to do it on a per pixel readout level. Not only do you have to have the additional architecture to have a counter in- increment and everything else for that That's one software, pixel. That's software, isn't it? No, no. I that, mean, you that could ha- do that with a system on a chip. Uh, that has to be done at the sensor level. That has to be done as the signal is being received you couldn't have, you couldn't have, uh You couldn't have an SOC doing that for as an off-board powering source for the calculations needed for the sensor? Not unless you have every pixel being its own independent thing. But right now we don't. Like if you've got a 6,000 by 4,000 resolution sensor, 6,000 pixels horizontally are being registered by one uh, analog to digital converter. 
And so you would need to have every one of those broken out to have their own ADCs and their own subset of technology in order to interpret that. So the level of complexity, at least in my mind, requiring that to be put into place for the high resolution sensors that we currently enjoy in photography today, um, I'm thinking that the resolution for something like this over engineered would be like they're labeling pixel cells here. Uh, at, uh, at at 20 microns. Our average pixels that we're currently getting uh, on cameras today uh, could be uh, three microns, right? So it's orders of magnitudes larger per pixel. Okay, but that's, that's... And, and if you see all of the control mechanisms around the chip uh, based on uh, the, uh, the, uh, the supporting silicon, the supporting silicon around the sensor is... Uh, I'm, I'm going to say nine times bigger than the, the actual image recording portion of it itself. And so but, but that- let me give you a hypothetical. What if I presented you with a camera that had a sensor in it that was only five megapixels, but did this? That would, I don't know if five would be useful enough for me for photography, but it would certainly, if I could push even with, with the it in AI, even with the machine learning we have now, we're going to talk about the, the Pixel 4 later. But, you know, the Pixel 4 has a crazy zoom that we'll talk about that's yep. effectively interpolating. Couldn't, what if you had five megapixels that captured all of your highlights with never clipping anything? I, I've it, seen great images taken with three megapixel cameras. So yes, five megapixels could make magic, especially if it allows you to push certain limits that otherwise you would not be able to to, to push it, into. That, that's my point. But they're not going to put that into a consumer-facing product until that megapixel number, which is something of a golden marketing term, hits right. at least 16 megapixels, maybe 20 uh, oh, by no, the time. No, 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 I disagree. Phones are 12. Well, right. But when you're buying a dedicated exclusive device for photography, people compare those numbers. And if the benefit of this extra technology is not as readily apparent, and I'm going to reference Sigma's Foveon sensor technology right now, they never moved those cameras in significant numbers, even though they had a significant advantage in the image quality that would be produced by it. I don't think that significant advantage in image quality, but what what a consumer or more to the point a pro sees an, as an advantage is not a static item, right? Yeah. So there are a number of pros that will go, wait a minute, I, I never clip a highlight. I don't care that it's only 12 megapixels. I'm in. Yeah, you're right. I um, think that power overrides a lot of things. I, you know, and, and 12 megapixels, I, I should eat my words a little bit. That's the resolution of the uh, the Lumix GH5S. It's not designed for stills. It's designed uh, decidedly as a video camera, but it has a, uh, a stills component in it. I shot snowflakes with that camera last year just to see how it performed. And those pixels were excellent. Yes, I only had 12 of them, uh, but I published a, uh, you know, a, a good body of work from my time when I was borrowing that camera. So it'll be interesting to see what they do with this. It'll be interesting to see well, you need to have a major camera manufacturer, uh, or I should say a sensor manufacturer. So that would be uh, Sony, Canon, or Tower Jazz, potentially, um, come in and start utilizing this kind of technology. But if it's only in its infancy proof of concept stage, and it would have to be adapted into a consumer device that m- might not have started to be designed yet, you are many years away from seeing anything like this show up into uh, into our cameras. And there might be other ways to do this because 
I know a number of companies are working on organic sensor technology as well. And and that's poised to revolutionize some things and kind of push our limits further. Um, that's a good point. There could be people we have not seen a research paper written on yet that are creating something secretly in parallel to this that yeah. that may have read this paper and gone, <laughs> wait till they see ours. I but, mean, we don't know. When I mention organic sensors, I mean, Panasonic has showcased their 8K sensor in uh, in a more industrial camera type design, um, uh, showing that, hey, yeah, we've got that technology working. And it's only a matter of time before that comes in and pushes us, you know, one, two, three steps farther ahead. And yes, this might be the sixth or seventh step because, well, technology is always going to be... Uh, evolving and we're always going to have better cameras the next time we go and look to buy one um so but you're right it's interesting to see where this is evolving and uh kudos to these engineers for finding a way around a problem that has plagued photography since the inception of uh the digital revolution so all right uh next story this is uh this uh, steve is really prepared and excited for this one so it, it kind of comes in two parts. One article I found uh, on DP Review is uh, the Google Pixel 4 adds telephoto lens, improved portrait mode, and HDR in live view. That was uh, Google's big uh, big announcement was the Pixel 4 in various flavors. But also I found on Petapixel using an iPhone 11 Pro to capture the northern lights, which would have been an just uh, an exercise in futility in previous generations of smartphones. Yes. But, and I'm not going to say the quality of it is great, but the but fact that he it, did he, like his iPhone shot better than his camera. Right. Well, okay. And there's, there, there's other uh, things to, to, to go into to the mix there, but right. the, the idea of the cameras in our smartphones becoming so advanced in such a short period of time, um, you know, we've got now the ability to shoot, I thought it was amazing. Um, this was two, three years ago. I remember reading about somebody shooting a Milky Way image handheld because of the advancements in uh, in-body image stabilizer and lens stabilization. Right. You were able to do that. And that was with a dedicated camera. But now we're just about on the cusp of being able to do that same thing with our smartphones. So my question to you, Steve, I know that you've got an iPhone 11. Uh, it's I the, the, the The Pro Max, I have right? the 11 Pro Max. Right. So I want your opinions on that, but I also want your opinion on what Google is pushing out with the uh, the Pixel 4 and the Pixel 4 XL, because uh, their sample images that they provided also have like Milky Ways and astrophotography stuff that... It has was, an astrophotography mode, yeah. Well, it has a whole mode dedicated to it, right? But uh, my point is that we are pushing those limits far further and far faster than I would have expected, especially when Google came out with Nightside on the Pixel 3, which was just phenomenal. And they pushed that back to the earlier pixels uh, as best as they could as well. Um, This just kind of kicks that in high gear. Um, So what are your thoughts about the technology that's being presented to us? And then your hands-on experience about, you know, the competitor to the Pixel 4. You know, it's it's funny when they announced this, the, the Pixel 4 in all its variations, I was watching live as the event was happening and I'm listening to what people are saying about the event. And I find that there's a number of features in the pixel Four series that are extremely intriguing to me. Things that we always hear when we're talking about phones, Android people saying, Oh, Apple added this (laughs) Samsung's had it for years and vice versa. Look, they're stealing from everybody now, right? 
any phone that you buy has stuff that the other guy had years ago. But individually, each phone has the ability to take amazing photography and video. One of the things that I keep seeing online. It, I, with the I just picture, want to interject. It yeah. has the ability to, right? The ability to, right? The uh, photographer it's not still do it matters. On its own. I mean, you're the photographer, right? Yes. The photographer still matters. The understanding light, understanding environment, understanding all of that matters. But I keep seeing comparisons between the two, which are, don't misunderstand me. It's like we talked about MTF charts. Comparisons are still a baseline to go by. Yep. But one of the beautiful things about photography is it is subjective. So people complain that Samsung over-processes their images with too much sharpening and too much saturation. And there's been complaints with uh, Apple's uh, skin smoothing uh, in the past. Skin smoothing or Apple in the new iPhone 11 series, that's fixed. But some people say, yeah, you know what? It's really color accurate, but I kind of wish that it had a punch, right? There is a, you can end up some people getting toast and they like it burned, right? There's different... There's different ways that people see things. And the problem with a lot of the reviews that I'm seeing is that you're seeing stuff side by side. And it's like televisions. If you go buy an LG television and put it in your house, you're probably going to love it. If you go buy a Sony television and put it in your house, you're probably going to love it. If you look at them side by side in a store, your interpretation of on the 1% difference between them, right? Exactly. And that's what I'm finding happening. So the other day, Andy Anatko, our mutual friend, is posting a lot of Pixel 4 images and they're amazing, but he posted one of food taken both with the iPhone and the Pixel 4. Oh, and he got torn into by by the white balance and his assertion uh, one way or another on that one, right? That, that the, he, his statement was the plate is white. And people were saying, yeah, but what was the lighting? Right, it's exactly. a white if you're plate. Like under incandescent lights versus uh, fluorescence, it's gonna. I commented on Twitter. I'm sorry, but the iPhone picture here not only looks better, but pronouncedly better. The food on the right looks like I'd be afraid to eat it. Yeah, that but, was I mean, that, that that's one. How the cameras have to interpret data. Cameras have well, always but, been but, interpreting but, information. But let me continue here because that was that one shot. Since then, he's posted a ton of other stuff online that makes me want the Pixel Four at times. So. Any phone you buy is going to have areas it does better shots and areas it has worse shots. Phones are not bought only for cameras. There's a lot of variables. I mean, it's a big part of it, but there's a lot of variables. Variables People buy for battery life. People buy for storage. People buy for an ecosystem that they're embedded in, right? They buy for an operating system. Some people actually buy the phone because they want Google Assistant over Siri, which I'm with you. Hey, well, you know, like I, I bought my phone because it does 3D stuff. Because it does 3D. Hydrogen. Uh, and there's, but in the early updates for this phone, because uh, I got uh, one of the earliest samples. It was when they were still sort of developing the um, uh, uh, the software part of things, even though the hardware had been finalized. Uh, some of the early updates uh, said, we've improved the color science of, of the cameras. And it means that these things are constantly being tweaked and tailored to specific scenes and specific uh, scenarios that you might find yourself shooting in. But and tweaked for those engineers' taste. And that's true. A, that, yes. That is a very key distinction in that if you take the same picture with, let's, let's use your phone, an iPhone, and a Pixel 4, the same picture is going to come out different. And who's to say which one's best? Yes, one may be more accurate. 
But one well, may be more pleasing. Accuracy to reality is a fallacy, Steve. And again, and that's my point is one may be more pleasing to the palate. So they're all capable. What I find interesting in the phones at this level, because again, we're really talking about, you know, Canon has a more magenta feel than a Nikon. We're talking about engineering choices at the factory. We don't have as much control over. What I find fascinating is those features that they're putting in that make that phone 100% unique. So iPhone is going to be coming out in 13.2 with Deep Fusion. That's going to be fascinating to play with. Well, and, uh, describe Deep Fusion. So Deep Fusion, there's multiple, uh, there, there's multiple technologies that are in use on an iPhone in iOS 13 and with the new iPhone 11 series that take advantage of different lights. So if you're in a very bright scene, it'll use HDR, smart HDR. If you're in a dark scene, it kicks into night mode, right? Which the Pixel has had for a while. If you're in that almost dark scene, Deep Fusion will kick in, which what it basically does in Deep Fusion is it takes a series of images before you ever press the shutter that are normal exposure. When you press the shutter, and I'm trying to remember if I've got these in the right order. So, you know, if, if, I, if I get them in the wrong order, yell at me, that's fine. When you press the shutter, it then takes a, I'm trying to remember if it's underexposed, and then it takes a long exposure. It combines the last two to make a synthetic long exposure. It then takes that and combines it with the ones taken before the shutter press that have the detail in them. And then it renders all that down to a standard megapixel because if you're, you're really working with 24 megapixels at that point because the the ones before are combined, the synthetic, now you've got two 12 megapixel images, you combine them, you're still result in a 12 megapixel image. Well, images. that's like uh, the Foveon sensor again, complaining that the amount of detail within that same pixel space, they were calling them like, oh, it's a 40 mega ray sensor. Yeah, well, that, that's and it's meaningless. Not. It's, it's not. meaningless. This ends up as a... It's a slightly larger file size, but it is a 12 megapixel image at the end. And what you get is extreme retention of detail. So for this, it's a joke. Apple keeps using shots of people using sweaters. Okay. And the reason is because you can see the fibers in the sweater. Right. But Tyler Stallman did some testing in the beta with Deep Fusion and of selfies and stuff. And it is amazing what it does. Now translate that to the pixel four. The pixel four has a non photography feature. I would pay for live transcription. Oh yeah. So, I heard about so this. So as you're well, recording, it, it will transcribe it. Good, right? It's not going to be a hundred percent, but it's better than having nothing. If you throw that down in a meeting, you don't have to take notes, right? It's writing them for you. Right. But it also has an AI zoom. And Andy posted a test where he was way down the street and he shot a picture. I think it was in Boston and way down the street is this tall building with a spire. And then he zoomed into what is effectively eight time zoom. And it was sharp. Now we're talking eight time zoom. Uh, this is digital zoom, right? And so I'm going to read. It is the- a digital zoom, but uh, let me throw this out because you may not know this. Even the normal, there is a zoom lens on the Pixel 4 yep. now. There was not before. Even I, the I was two just time- about to read this, Steve. It says, okay. in fact, the telephoto uh, camera uses a hybrid of optical and digital zoom at its default zoom setting to achieve approximately a 2x zoom, right? Yeah. Isn't that interesting that they have a zoom lens, but chose to do a hybrid of optical and digital? That's how much confidence they have in their digital. 
And the zooms I'm seeing that are purely digital are scary good. Oh yeah, and yeah, I mean this is all interpolation of information. We, it's it's making guesses uh, based on what it thinks should be there and fills in the gaps. And this, I think, is going to be the future of mobile photography as it continues to evolve. Because this is where I think Google's going to beat Apple. By the way. Well, not only in terms of the technology out right now, but you're building a base of patents. And once you have that that sort of foundation that you have, nobody else can use them unless you license them. And yet maybe they'll choose to and then make oodles just on licensing or Apple will have to reinvent it in a different way. In a and- different way or license the technology. Now, the argument could be made at some point it will become Frand technology, fair and reasonable uh, licensing required. Right. But – but this to me is where, and by the way, Google has an up here because being Google, they've got access to every picture on the internet to compare things to for their machine learning. They've got GPS location information to know where you are to limit what pictures they're looking at to say, oh, you're on this street. You're facing this direction. I see that spire in the back. I know what that is. I can combine what I know what that is into the digital rendering that I'm doing I don't think they're that sophisticated yet, but oh, what no, you but just it described, you've got all of those puzzle pieces floating around. It's only it a hundred percent will together. Be. Yeah. So the rest of the Pixel 4, better portrait mode. They needed that. I think in the samples I've seen, it's actually better than the iPhone now for the, for the mode. Uh, it's got six gigs of RAM now, so it's better responsiveness because that's a big deal with Android is its memory management is not as good as an iPhone. That's right pretty much a done deal. Um, They do some interesting things with the portrait mode. Now they're doing the blur. Uh, It's added to the raw, the the background blur and portrait mode before they tone map the image. Uh, I don't know if that's the result. iPhones don't cut out as well. I took a picture last night of a glass next to a whiskey bottle in portrait mode and it blurred the top of the glass. And I've seen some uh, horrible failures with like fences and things where it just cannot isolate the foreground from the background based on uh, its programming. I mean, it'll get better, but you'll still find so many cases where it just works perfectly nine times out of 10. But that one time when it fails, it fails spectacularly. And and I do want to talk about failures because there are areas where the Pixel 4, as much as I've liked it in some of the reviews... Android Central came out and said it's the first Pixel phone that they will not recommend or can't recommend. Well, that was from battery life, right? And it's because of battery life. And I've heard this complaint a lot about the Pixel 4 that the battery life is just horrendously bad. Well, not only that, but the Pixel 4 maxes out, and I do not understand this. You can get the Pixel 4 at 64 gigabytes or 128 gigabytes. Now, if you think about Google, Google's whole thing is you don't need to store your pictures on the device. You can store your Pixels your, your, your photos in Google photos. The problem is not having onboard storage beyond 128 gigabytes, which is the max that you can buy limits a lot of what you can do. So 4K video, for example, 4k video, you can do at 30, but you can't do it 60 frames a second. And here's what Google tweeted, which is just a lame excuse. Pixel 4 supports 4K video recording on the rear camera at 30 frames per second. And here comes the disclaimer. Uh, We find that the majority of users stick with 1080p. So we focus our energy on improving our quality in this mode versus enabling 4K at 60 frames per second mode. That's whataboutism. That 
That could use, yeah, exactly. That could use up to a half a gigabyte of storage every minute. Well, first of all, that wouldn't be a problem if you sold me a 256 phone. But secondly, improving 1080p, what did you do to 1080p to make it better? What yeah, am I supposed to that. see? You know, that's just, to me, that's dumb. They failed in two other areas. There's no wide angle lens. And while you have a normal lens in a telephoto, and therefore you can simulate an eight time zoom because you still have some zoom info, you can't simulate info that doesn't exist. Right. You can't, and there is no well, wide angle. I mean, tell that to Adobe with their content aware fill, but I don't it, think that's the solution here. No, it's not. Here's the other big problem with this phone. So the iPhone uh, face ID works amazingly well. Most of the time, right? Not always, most yep. of the time. One of the problems people are finding on the Pixel is Google did not program in a what, what's called an awareness mode. So on, on the iPhone, there's awareness, which is my eyes have to be open and looking at the camera to unlock it. And if my eyes are closed, like the police pull you over and they try holding the phone up to your face to unlock it, if your eyes are closed, it won't unlock if attention awareness is on. Cool. That can be disabled and it's a faster unlock because you don't have to worry about looking at the phone. Well, Pixel didn't have that feature at all. Right. So the phone can be woken up by holding up, up to somebody's face that's sleeping. Right. And what they've said is that there will be an update coming in a few months that enables an attention requirement. I just, I don't know. I, mean, I just that, think that should that's have been there uh, out of the gate. But um, hey, uh, before we move on to uh, to the next and final story here, what is your initial opinion of the iPhone 11 Pro Max that you have in your pocket? I love it. Um, it is not perfect by any means, but I can't really find a lot that I'd pick on. Really, the issues I'm having are more iOS 13, which is horribly buggy. But the iPhone 11 Pro Max, I have to say, it's actually the fastest computer I have ever used. Really? The That's silicone in this thing, something's weird because they <laughs> stuck a chip in this phone that is just way more power than this device needs. I mean, I mean, hands down, way more power. I don't know if they're planning ahead for AI stuff. I don't know what they're planning on. Oh, I can guarantee this, you that's true. But, but also, it is. how many times have they updated iOS? Um, three. And then... Uh, 13? Uh, iOS no, no, 13, but I, three. I'm talking about uh, historically here. When you might have bought yourself like an iPhone 5, and then they update iOS because a new phone comes out. They update iOS and a new phone comes out. And then you're still on the track for having the latest OS, but it gets so laggy because they've they've really maxed out what they could do with your phone, and they've actually pushed too far. And this has been a complaint right. in the past. Uh, so well, people I, complain saying they think Apple is doing it to force you to buy a new phone, and it's not it. They're writing with today's chips and technology in mind. Yep. And the, today's memory management in mind and putting it on a system on a chip that doesn't have that power. But this thing, I kid you not, it is insanely fast. And the cameras uh, are shocking. And, and actually, now that I think about it, there's one area that surprised me. So my son's in a band and I've held up my old iPhone 10 or my iPhone whatever before that and recorded him playing live in a club. And the audio always clips to death on the recording. I was on stage at Self-Help Fest recording video and the sound was amazing. I don't know what they're doing, but uh, the microphone on this thing is just fantastic at recording in really bizarre audio situations. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's uh, it, it's a wave of the future, right? Um, but uh, 
you know, we'll, we'll, we'll revisit that too. I mean, my, I got, um, an iPhone 11, uh, for my, my wife to test out for me cause I'm still using my hydrogen. And, uh, while I enjoyed the, uh, the experience of, of using it, I mean, it's really my wife's regular uh, 11 or pro, uh, just the regular, uh, okay, she which wanted- is actually the phone most people should get. And she wanted the red one, so it was a color decision. Uh, <laughs> but uh, we we got that, and uh, uh, she's been doing the snaps and the testing, and I've been kind of watching the results of the images, and it is such an improvement over, admittedly, an older phone, the iPhone 6S. But uh, we were at a wedding on the weekend, and uh, there's a photo of my daughter standing in front of some big, uh, uh, big windows that she's completely being backlit. And it did a remarkable job at revealing her features with the background and not creating basically what would be a silhouette, uh, which her previous phone would be completely incapable of doing. And I know the software is understanding the scenario and it's been programmed to act accordingly and to take multiple exposures, blend them together with whatever AI secret sauce that Apple has put in behind the scenes. Um, and that's only getting better. And I think that when we have the next uh, iOS update, everybody's focusing now on the cameras. I mean, it's one of the primary features yeah, for these devices. Uh, so we are going to see a rapid advancement in this type of technology uh, because I think that there's a lot of uncharted territory here. I think there's so much to 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 grow to advance on. Where, you know, uh, just to put put a spin on it, I'm using Microsoft Word, Microsoft Office 2013. I see no reason to ever upgrade my right. word processor ever again, forever. Um, but with the advancements with these cameras and the artificial intelligence and computational photography and, and what have you, um, there is so much to do um, that if you over-provision a phone because you know that you're going to have uh, the software catch up to it, I think that's smart. Well, well a lot of computational photography is putting these chips to task. There's no question some of what they're doing computationally is processor intensive. So overbuilding it lets you build these features that would theoretically be impossible on a phone. I do think that is one area that Apple has hands down over uh, Google using off the shelf, whatever a Snapdragon 855 or something like that uh, chip is that Apple making their own system on a chip gives them a leg up in many, many ways, battery management, et cetera. Well, uh, again, we keep our finger on the pulse of this type of stuff because uh, every heartbeat in that smartphone industry is one that every photographer should be listening to. Um, There might be a point where I don't need to have a small compact camera because my phone will supersede it in every way. I doubt it would ever replace my studio gear. But um, the day is coming where, uh, where these phones will be the only cameras that the average consumer will ever use. Uh, recreational photography yeah exactly all right uh we're at the hour mark steve so let's carry on to the next story quickly this one i didn't figure we'd spend too much time on no this is an easy one uh but from f stoppers canon has announced firmware updates to enable 24p video on previously crippled cameras so uh talk market segmentation here right i mean uh you want uh 24p it feels cinematic right uh uh, and legitimately, it's it's used a lot uh, in in cinema because, well, it's always had that cinema feel, and there's a tradition there. Uh, and I enjoy stuff shot at that particular frame rate. But um, should you then remove it from cameras that might be lower uh, lower tier products and only offer it in the more prestigious cameras um, that? Uh, 
basically you want people to upgrade because this is a feature that you want to buy into when you spend more money on a product. Now that logic, conflict of interest is the phrase you're looking for. (laughs) I'm (laughs) just going to say, uh, now, but that idea, uh, with holding off certain features for specific product classes, even though there's no technical reason for you to do so, um, uh, has been, uh, it, this is not the first time. Uh, so for, for example, Canon, for Canon, uh, any, I mean, I still complain about no intervalometers in their camera bodies because they want you to buy the external Canon, uh, yep. RS, something or other, uh, wireless, uh, or a wired intervalometer that you plug in to the, um, uh, the remote shooting port. And yeah, that, that costs like 150 or 200 bucks, uh, because Canon wants to get your money. And, uh, even the one DX Mark II, which I shot with for a long time, had uh, dual pixel autofocus yet never had dual pixel raw. And I have no idea why they didn't just add that in. It was a flagship product. Uh, yeah, it's not entirely useful for most people, but heck, if I could shoot it, I'd want to. If if there's no technical reason why I cannot do that, then don't prevent me from doing that. Um, there's a lot of uh, a lot of stuff that Canon, uh, and I'm singling them out here because there's been ways the, around. They that. are the worst. They are Got the it. worst, and there's been ways around that uh, on their point and shoot cameras. I forget the name of the software hacks that can add new features to them. I know Magic Lantern uh, is common for the 5D uh, series camera bodies right. and others. Um, although I remember somebody saying that if they, um, if if Magic Lantern were to, and this was in an interview from Canon, I believe, and uh, hopefully it's not hearsay. Um, but that if Magic Lantern were to try and do something with the 1DX, um, they would sue them out of existence. Uh, and I'm paraphrasing based on memory from a long time ago because it's the same reason why Canon, if you have a firmware update for the 1DC, uh, which they recently issued because of the uh, uh, the, the picked bridge, the, the, the printing, uh, Bluetooth, whatever the, the issues were with the hacking. bug. It was a security bug, yeah. bug. Security bug. If you want to update your 1DC or have any other previous firmware updates applied to it, you have to send it back to the service center. They don't allow anybody to see that file because you could flash that with some very simple modifications, this is my assumption, to a 1DX and enable 4K video shooting on a camera that was much, much less expensive. Right. So Canon has done this ad nauseum. Uh, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm sick to see again that they were disabling or removing the feature of 24p or just not releasing it onto certain camera bodies. The public outcry, well, and my big I think, problem is how they've dealt with it, right? Well, my Carry big on. problem is a lot. My big problem is a lot of things with Canon right now, but. Their their press release on this was, and I quote: "Canon is committed to providing a diverse and full lineup of products." My insert here is. We have competing products to this is what they're really saying. Yeah. We have a full line of products to cater for all capabilities and interests by listening to our customers' feedback and providing enhanced uh, enhancements accordingly. That's total BS. Well, and it's you know, a I conflict can, I can of read interest. between the lines so easily here to say, yeah, yes. we have we have a whole diverse line, lineup of products. Yes, because you arbitrarily choose to cripple some Correct. of them. <laughs> and the key word there is arbitrary. They have the C-line cinema cameras – 
And then they have their EO series and they don't want them stepping on each other, which is ridiculous and wrong in my opinion. Well, because there's so many reasons why you would use a C series camera uh, beyond 24 P. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. They cripple camera lines based on software features. Now, inherently, it's all the same software. It's what it's basically what Microsoft used to do. Windows 7, you could get Homer Pro. It was the same software. You type in a code, it unlocked the features, right? Yeah. It's the same concept. 24P not being in some bodies. Uh, my big one, spot metering. Spot metering is only available in any useful sense on a 1DX line. Every other line, including the 5 Series, which people think is a pro body, Canon doesn't see it as a pro body. It's prosumer and spot metering is only off the center point. Here's another one. one yeah, well, I, I, I want to go back to that one DX, I think, because spot okay. metering and Nikon has uh, has a good version of it and pretty much across the line. If, spot if metering follows the focus point on all the top Nikon bodies. Right. It but only follows the focus point on a one D body. On that's Canon. what I was getting to. Exactly. Yeah. Which is useless to me. If I move my focus point up and way to the right in spot metering, to put it on a singer whose face is lit up by a spotlight, it's still spot metering off the center, which is a black part of the stage. Useless. So it's completely useless. And that's a software feature. There's no reason to turn it off. To me, software should not be the differentiator in body lines. Hardware should. One slot versus two slots, the type of slots, the processor that's in there, the fact that you have two digit eights instead of one digit eight. Um, frames per second. There's a lot of ways to differentiate bodies other than cripple software that you've written. It's already done. It just makes no sense. Yeah. Uh, and, and and to be fair, too, there, there's other ways in the camera bodies, especially now that everybody's mirrorless, the resolution of the electronic viewfinder and the resolution of the rear screen, how bright or the dynamic range of that screen as well could be useful for certain people. Articulating um, or not. Well, exactly. And, uh, you know, the, the, the buttons, the dials, the features, the ports. I mean, there are certain things that, yeah, like the Sony just rolled out the A9 II that includes an Ethernet port on that. Uh, because some people, uh, especially in the photojournalist and, and sports photography realm, might find that to be useful. Um, and that is a very valid product differentiator. Uh, but to say that, oh, you've got that port, but and we've got that port on multiple cameras, but you know, on if you buy the lesser one, uh, it's only you know a hundred megabit per second. If you uh, if you buy into the higher one, we'll unlock the faster speed. But if it's all the same hardware behind the scenes, there's no reason for you to limit that type of stuff. And I just made a fictional a- analogy there about right, the speed right, right. of an Ethernet port, but uh, our, our point stands. And and I'm glad that Canon has turned about on this a little bit. Canon is by far the worst aggressor in this area, and there's a lot of room for them to turn around and walk back on. Um, They walked back safely, though. I mean, they walked back while trying to to disclaim and it and and it it, it's um, I don't want to use the word unethical. It's not unethical. Look, they're a for profit company. They can try and make profit any way that they want. I just think it's disingenuous. Yes, that's a good to try and say that we're listening to our customers and therefore we're going to give you a feature back that should never have been taken out right well let's put a pin in that then canon shame on you uh be better at uh at marketing your cameras and just give us all the software that we can handle because you know what if you make us happy we'll still buy your cameras if you make us upset and angry because your cameras at a certain price class are missing features because you want to try and upsell us to a higher product when your competitors aren't doing the same thing you're going to lose market share 
Uh, and that, it's I guess- It's kind of short-sighted, isn't it? Yeah, we, we have to vote with our wallets on this one. So, uh, you know, make, make your purchasing decisions accordingly to buy a camera from a company that knows uh, what you want. It's got your back in terms of what it can funnel into a camera in terms of features and functionality, uh, even well after that camera has been released, which Canon has been reluctant to do. The biggest one that they ever did, and this one bothered me a lot. Um, we talk about frames per second and, uh, uh, and, and even camera buffer. Uh, this was with the original 7D, I believe, where they knew that the successor to the 7D was further out, uh, but they needed to maintain the viability of that market. That the product had to you know, maintain its market share. Um, so they made a firmware update and they claimed at the time that it was better compression algorithms uh, and some other marketing jargon, but they were able to uh, vastly improve the performance of the 7D, including the amount of buffer space that the camera had. So oh, when, I remember that update. Yeah. So that when you were shooting, you would be able to shoot longer bursts. Now that I would assume to be a hardware limitation, but what if, and I don't want to put words, I'm not going to state anything, but what if that was initially software, uh, it had more overhead than they were willing to throw it on the market because they knew that the next product had to be better than that. And they didn't know if they were going to engineer it well right. enough or have the, the next cycle of faster memory and processors. I'm trying to remember. I, I remember when I updated my 70 with that and it was something like you could buffer 18 shots and they raised it to 25 shots. Or it was a like significant difference. Rock. Yeah. It was a big difference. Yeah. Um, yeah. And again, Canon, come on, man. I want, yeah. I want to cheer for Canon. I'm a Canon shooter and I love my Canon gear, but every time I turn around, it's kind of like I'm, I'm looking at a backroom conversation, you know, through a smoky haze of them saying, how can we hurt people? Yeah. Well, uh, there you go, Canon. That is your public image right now. So better clean it up. All right. Uh, on that note, let's get into our picks of the week. Uh, I'm actually going to start with one, then go to you, and I'm going to come around to another one. I just—it's not really a, a pick; it's more of just a, a mention, a shout out to uh, some of my friends at uh, Princeton Photo Workshops, where uh, just last weekend I did a, um, a seminar and a, um, a water droplet workshop series. There, great people, um, Alan and Barbara that that run it, uh, do amazing work. And this was my fourth year there, and I'm going to be going back again next year doing water drop. And um, uh, we're going to do a, an attempt at an ultraviolet fluorescence workshop, which will be a ton of fun. Ooh, that'll be fun. Uh, they asked me to mention uh, something that I was really enthused about. I wish I could go along with them. They're, normally, they do stuff in the Princeton, New Jersey area, uh, but they're organizing a seven-day travel photography workshop uh, to tour one of Germany's most diverse areas. Um, and so it's going to be a fascinating, uh, less-traveled area, uh, including Germany's post-industrial Rust Belt, Charlemagne's favorite medieval haunts, uh, and a day in Cologne at Photokina as a part of a photo workshop. So Ooh, you, that would be interesting. So if you've ever wanted to go to Photokina, but you just didn't have the nudge to get there, do something that includes both a photo workshop and a trip to Photokina at the same time, two birds with one stone while you're in Germany. And so uh, you can find more about what they're doing there at PrincetonPhotoWorkshop.com. And I'll put the links in the show notes. And I've got a, a real pick after that. But uh, I just wanted to shout out to those guys because I've enjoyed every moment working with them on the workshops that we presented. Uh, and uh, we'll be doing it for year five again next year. So, uh, Steve, well, what is your pick? My pick of the week, some people are going to look at and go, really, is is that 
photography related? Well, if you shoot what I shoot, this is definitely photography related. So you only have one set of ears. When I'm in a photo pit, I'm quite often standing in front of subwoofers and there could be 15 of them. They shake your body. (laughs) Yes. I mean, I'm standing in front of subwoofers that are, you know, two feet deep, four feet high and three feet wide. And there could be an entire stage width of these things. Not to mention just the normal sound of the PA system. So a lot of live music photographers use the standard foam earplugs. The problem with standard foam earplugs, they can work. It can be difficult to roll them up, get them in your ear, have them expand properly and seal properly. That's always been an issue for me. But also they mute everything to a muffled state. Then you have the more uh, construction type earplugs, which usually are on a big orange band that go behind your head, and they're more tapered foam. Those were good. Same problem, though. They mute. You can also buy other types of musicians earplugs that are anywhere from $39 to $100 that go in your ears and have what's called filters in them. Again, the same problem. If you're anything like me, my left ear is not like my right ear, and it's difficult to get a set that fit my ears well. I own custom molded earplugs. Now, mine are from a company called Sensophonic. I bought them years ago. I love my Sensophonics. I don't know that I would do Sensophonics today because you have to go to an audiologist and get an ear mold made where they inject into your ears. And that actually, one of my ears hurt really bad when they did that. That doesn't sound fun, yeah. One wasn't a problem, but I have a very narrow ear canal it ends out in one ear and it actually hurt. I mean, I was in tears at one point during that. Ultimate Ears makes, uh, which are very well known, they do in-ear monitors for a lot of top musicians. They make what they call microsonic musicians earplugs. And the Ultimate Ears, the advantage to Ultimate Ears is if you go to an Ultimate Ears facility, they use ultrasound to map your ear. Oh, interesting. And take takes five minutes. They're done. You see the mold of your ear on the screen. And seven days later in the mail, you get your earplugs. Now, the custom molded earplugs, the nice thing is... They fit in your ears as a perfect fit and they have filters in them and you can get filters in 15 minus 15 dB or minus 25 dB. There's other companies out there, right? Like my sense of phonics, I can get a nine, a 15 or a 25 uh, minus dB. The advantage is they reduce all frequencies in such a way that it's not muffled. So when I have my earplugs in, it's like a neutral density filter that's not uh, turning into like frosted glass, right? You can still well, see, it's or you actually, can still hear. It's actually an engineered piece of filter because it reduces different frequencies differently to get everything to come down so that it sounds the same. I can hold a conversation with my earplugs in and mine are the minus 25 usually. But here's the key from a music photography point of view, I can hear the singer. So it's not all muffled. So I can enjoy the music. I can get into the music. I can tell when a crescendo is coming because I know what he's doing, which right. helps me in timing my shots. And Ultimate Ears, I think they're 200 bucks. It was more for my sense of phonics because I had to have the mold separate from the plugs. Right. But here, it's like 200 bucks. And it is so well worth it if you shoot live music to have custom molded plugs. So that's a great pick, uh, especially, I mean, it's fairly niche to a specific industry, mind you. I don't know uh, how many people, maybe if you're constantly shooting on construction sites, that would be useful. But no, I, I could think I, of I you're know. shooting NASCAR, you're shooting racing. Oh, you're right, shooting, motorsports. You know, you tend to just go to the, you know, Formula One race that's in your city and photograph from the side. Um, 
you know, guns, you know, that type of thing. There's a lot of times, if you think about it, where- You put a lot of uh, good ideas forward there. Noise yeah. can be a problem. And again, you can put in a minus 15 dB if you just want to go shoot in your local jazz club and protect your ears. Yeah, cool. Great pick, Steve. Thanks for always coming up with something new for the pick of the week. Um, my uh, my real pick uh, beyond the Princeton Photo Workshop, which I think that a lot of people should take a look at, um, but uh, it just dropped this past week, is that On One has announced their On One Photo Raw 2020. And if you're unfamiliar with the company, uh, I mean, I, I was first introduced with them uh, with their uh, Genuine Fractals product, which is now called uh, On One Resize. And uh, was great at, you know, we were talking about like a five megapixel image uh, and how you can make that useful. I was able to salvage like a few pixels, a few megapixels from uh, from certain images and blow them up to relatively large sizes and have them look great. It's what I use to, uh, you know, print things on canvas. I've got a big um, 80 by 20 uh, uh, image of lightning striking across my waterfront that's made with seven megapixels worth of information uh, i talked about earlier yeah exactly if you, could, if you could get that sensor that keeps the highlights and yeah, do that exactly yeah well i didn't have too much blown out in that particular photo but um so on one photo raw 2020 just amps everything up and they've uh they've also started to play into many other areas uh not just your classic photography the last updates uh involved uh or they they produced <clears throat> Sorry, I got a frog in my throat. Uh, they they had produced um, uh, much better data uh, management, so they had a digital asset manager that was you know on par with Lightroom. In fact, you could port all of your stuff in from Lightroom into uh, into the, the the new version. Well, this was that, that was 2019. Um, in uh, in 2020, I'm just looking at the list of all of the new stuff that they've added uh, in here. So, jeez, um, oh, I. I started playing around with it and just even like highlight recovery and things that were before great. Uh, and the way that you can bring out detail within your photos has been vastly improved. Uh, I'm going to put a, a link to where I can, uh, can showcase all of these videos. If you haven't checked out on one products, um, they've got a lot going on and, uh, they have been, I, I don't want to say a, a partner with me. I mean, I've done some video courses for them in the past. I did a great one on macro photography. Um, and they had me as a guest host for a month and, and we've got some stuff maybe coming up in the future. Um, but I want to get off of my Adobe and uh, Adobe dependence. And so, uh, on one is now in, not in every case. I mean, if I'm doing massive focus stacking or some other crazy extremes, I still have to use Photoshop begrudgingly. Uh, but more and more, I don't even have to fire up Photoshop or Lightroom. It's just on one and it'll handle everything for That's me. That's nice. Um, and uh, yeah, I, there's other people besides on one in this space doing great work. I, I'm not going to say it's just this one company, but this is their big release. Uh, and from what I've been seeing behind the scenes, there's even more great stuff to come. And it's a single price. I mean, so basically uh, on, it's not a subscription. It's not a subscription. They do have their on one plus, which is a subscription. They give you tons of extra free content, learning tools and everything else. Um, but uh, between 79 and $99. Uh, oh, and, wow. and that, uh, you know, I'm just reading on their website, pre-order bonus, uh, as an upgrade for existing on one product owners, $79. And you are now into the latest version, full version for new customers, uh, for 99 bucks. Uh, it's, it's kind of a no brainer in terms of the, they have, I'm assuming a trial. Yep, absolutely. So there's a 30 day trial. You want to pick it up and play with it and just see if this is going to be the right fit for you. Maybe watch a couple of tutorials and see how easy it is to learn the interface. It's very intuitive. Um, and uh, of course, they also have their on one plus, which is $150. It's it's 
per year. Uh, so, I mean, that's much less than what Adobe is going to charge uh, per month if I'm getting my full suite of stuff from them, including Premiere and everything else. Uh, that'll give you uh, a ton of learning material and uh, all of the on one plus uh, stuff, uh, lookup tables, looks, presets, etc. Um, so that is my plug for on one and nice. uh, and the stuff that those guys are doing. They're not a they're not a big conglomerate company like Adobe. Uh, it's a team of very well seasoned professionals that are very responsive to feedback from their user base, which is something that I was disappointed that I never even got any bit of uh, of wiggle room with Adobe on some very serious issues, very niche issues, but very serious issues that they could have done simple fixes for in the past. We're at a time to get on that soup soapbox now, but maybe remind me in a future uh, show and, uh, and I'll dig in a little bit further. But needless to say, I basically said, nah, that's not a bug. That's a feature. That's the way we intend it to work. We're not going to listen to you. We're not right. going to change anything. Uh, whereas the folks at on one are, uh, they, they want to make the best possible product uh, as good as possible for everybody. And they're doing a great job of it. So on one, thank you guys for, uh, for what you've been doing. And uh, Steve, that brings us to the end of another episode of photo geek weekly. Thank you so much for having me, man. Uh, you know, it's, it's always a blast having you on. I mean, you, you, you do more research into the stories than any other guest. Um, you know, nobody else has showed me the copious notes that they've made prior to yeah. recording. So uh, I do appreciate you digging in deep uh, and making the conversation that much more worthwhile. So for everybody that has been listening, Steve, uh, as we mentioned at the very beginning, and I are working on a new podcast, uh, video podcast critiques and you can find that information uh the link will be either at behindtheshot.tv which is where steve has his podcast or i'll also include the link to the Flickr group in the show notes over at photogeekweekly.com um with all of that said steve it's time to get out and shoot 